Hey guys, today on the show, we have uh, a good buddy of mine going all the way back to grade school. His name's Mike Fallow. He's a very interesting job. He's a close protection agent and an event security specialist. And he's worked with some of the most high profile pop stars in our generation and around the world. So these are people like Britney Spears, Kanye, Justin Timberlake, and uh, Christina Aguilera, to name a few. So he shares some stories to the extent that he can. We get into all aspects of uh, his security details and some of what it's like to live life on the road. This episode of Brevity Code was brought to you by Town Park Brew Co. Town Park, founded on the belief that good beer reflects the community it creates. We believe beer brings us together. It doesn't play favorites. Beer is a catalyst for conversation, for celebration, and inspiring creativity. I love me some Town Park, guys. Um, they're a local brew co. here in Anaheim. They brew, bottle, can, distribute all locally. They got a beautiful brand new tap room uh, off the five at Lincoln and Anaheim. If you live in Orange County area, definitely go check them out. And I'm super stoked that they're a part of the show. On the Brevity Code podcast, we'll explore a wide range of topics from the very people that give form and color to our world. We'll hear from artists, brand builders, industry leaders, pro athletes, fitness and endurance coaches, philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and many others. Through their actions, they enrich us with their vision, creativity, and bravery. Our guests have all been successful by flying in the face of conventional wisdom. We'll learn from them the ways in which we can apply that very knowledge to our own path and toward our own self-fulfillment. What's up, Mike? Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Brevity Code. I've got a really interesting guest today. He's actually a longtime buddy. We actually went to school together, uh, you know, K through eight back in the day. And it's weird how our, our, our paths in life happen. He's got an insanely um, interesting job. And I reached out to him recently because I thought it was worth sharing to you guys, my listeners. Um, so he does advanced venue security, and he's a close protection agent. So he's pretty much a badass. Um, he And we're hopefully going to get into some of his stories and heroics today. Um, in addition to that, not only does he do his job, uh, but he... He has worked with some of the biggest pop stars in the world consistently over the past couple decades. I'm talking Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Timberlake, and Kanye, and perhaps Mike can share even some more of the artists and acts he's worked with uh, as we as we get on with the show. So um, please welcome to the show, Mike Falo. Hey. What's up, dude? How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. So um, right now, you're on the road. Where... Where are you working? I am. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm laying in bed in Toronto, Canada. Um, <laughs> we just wrapped the first show of the uh, uh, Justin Timberlake Man of the Woods tour here yesterday. It was a long, long 22-hour day, but a very successful show. Yeah, dude, you sound a little tired, and that's fine. Don't yeah. worry about the energy level. It's all good. Yeah, all good. <laughs> um, just to just a date and timestamp this a bit. Um, this is this is a Wednesday afternoon in March, one uh, thirty uh, Pacific time. Uh, so obviously, you you had a late one last night, huh? Yeah, I mean, um, honestly, I mean, I I had it easy, uh, but I don't want to get into too much detail on the way this all works, but. With the touring world, but basically you have guys that have to go in in the morning and put these shows up and and build them and make them what they are and and you know some of those guys, you know, literally had to go in at one o'clock in the morning, assemble the entire show, and then when the show's done, 
instantly break it all down. And that's that's the real hero work. Those guys probably went about 30 hours without sleep. So um, Dude. it's an interesting process. Yeah, and I guess it's stuff. There's like a whole world to a concert presentation that, you know, as a concert goer, we really don't even think about, consider um, the, all that goes into the shows, um, that, which is which is what, a lot of what I want to dive in with you today. So why don't we talk a little bit about, I, I think even from a, um, a career path, this is a fairly interesting road. Can you share with us how you sort of um, got into this? Was it by accident or how does this come about? Yeah, it's an interesting story because my dad and I uh, had certain parallels where we, where we somewhat <laughs> Can I curse? But yeah, you, we yeah. BS ourselves into our uh, into our um, foot in the door, so to speak. Um, I won't get into my dad's story, but basically, the way it happened for me is I had met in 2000 the uh, the director of venue security for Britney Spears, who happened to be dating a friend of mine. Uh, we became friends. Um, I was struggling between a uh, a marketing career I didn't like and trying to find my next space in life and got laid off. The only job I was ever fired from, I'll say laid off, <laughs> uh, back in 2001. And I literally got a call four days later from him saying, hey, we need somebody um, to run this new credentialing machine. Are you good with computers? And this is post 9-11 uh, for reference. It's about a month and a half after 9-11. And at the time, I was not exactly great with computers. I simply said to him, oh, yeah, I'm a whiz. I know all about him. <laughs> I got it. Great. We're sending you a ticket. And I was in Tampa, Florida the next day uh, learning how to use this uh, credentialing system, which was the first of its kind to use uh, photo IDs uh, for local um, for local people working the show. So it was a kind of a unique thing. Anyway, that was my that was my beginning, and that's what kind of began this, this 17, 18-year career. Okay, so from now you've sort of got your foot in the door um, to do what you do. Uh, I mean, I you know, you're uh, you're you're I believe you're credentialed with uh, concealed carry in 36 states, and you know you've you know you're 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 right, right. A, so a lethal so basically, weapon. the foot in the door is okay. Uh, <laughs> here's a job. Um, it's a very lucrative career, but at that time, I was basically being paid piecemeal wages just to get in and do this and and see if I could actually make it. So. What you actually have to do is prove your your aptitude to the the job. I was brought in to do credentials, but as I was allowed to work more in the field of doing more and more of the actual security aspect of the job, I evolved, and it's com- completely a job based on referrals, reputation, um, and work ethic. And so I was able to work consistently getting my foot in the door on that tour. And then that manager of that particular artist had other artists that were big in the time from NSYNC and then Justin. Um, and I was kind of put on one tour to the next where I worked consistently and worked my way up the ladder to um, uh, further my skill sets with training. Yeah. And, and then bring some of what I thought was lacking in the, uh, um, in the job and kind of introduce some new elements to it as well. Awesome. And obviously those were, well, were well received, I assume, and, and added to your credibility. Um, and, and you were probably able to, you know, implement those things. And again, get with the likes of a Britney Spears in her heyday, right? I mean, that's, 
Was that your first? Yeah, I mean, real... I was, that was that was during the. It was a dream within a dream tour. That was in her. Was definitely in her heyday. That was two thousand one. Um, I went from there to in sync, back to Britney. Um, then we're talking that's a couple years into Justin's first first solo tour, back into Britney, um, and it kind of goes from there to there. And and you 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 again you work based on reputation, work ethic, and relationship. And yeah, um, what I was doing at that time was venue security. And if you want, I can kind of get with that. Yeah, means. let's have a baseline. What is that? Okay. So when you walk into a building, people are familiar with, you know, these guys in the yellow shirts or the yellow coats, let's say event staff or right. contemporary services or whatever. Um, what our responsibility is, is to bring the specific elements of the tour's demands. Um, and we have a rider that we send in advance and, and bring those demands of the artist and the management and the specifics about the stage into a specific venue and, uh, and request you know, what we want to see happen, whether it be we want these, uh, just to back up a bit, then we, what we do is we hire these local companies, whether it be contemporary services or event staff, and we use these temporary um, workers to basically stand around the stage um, and then implement the protocols that we would like to see um, that is dependent upon the stage. So, for example, if we go into the forum and we have a uh, a stage that has, you know, your typical rock stage, we've got a barricade and you've got a stage behind you, we tell, you know, we, we, di- we indicate how many people we want to have in that barricade, what they're supposed to be looking for, um, uh, even things such as, you know, if it's a, if it's a relatively volatile artist, whether we can have drinks be poured in cups versus the drinks being handed to them mm-hmm. or whether the water gets served with the caps on or caps wow. off, right. what the camera policy is, um, all these little nuances. And then, of course, on top of that, if there are specific threats to the artist, um, do, we local, do we hire local PD? Do we hire undercover PD? Mm-hmm. Do we bring in um, EOD sweeps, which is a bomb sweep dog, to actually check the stage and most of those things are happening at most concerts that people go to, you know, before they even get there. Wow. Um, and this kind of gives a foundation for safety, uh, not only for the artists and the crew, but the patrons. Right. Now I've got, we'll unpack that as this uh, talk goes on. Uh, Cause there's, I've, I've a ton of questions in regards to a lot of the things you just said. Um, so how, like, let's talk about, the how serious are the security threats to artists specifically these days, excluding which we'll get into in a bit. Some of the other issues, such as the concert shootings we've had and some of the terrorism aspects, and you can obviously talk about what you can talk about. I understand, but specifically to the artists, I mean, are you on the front lines of you know stalkers or threats? Uh, and, and is that how prominent is that? And, and how much of that is the artist's reality? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it depends on the artist. Um, I can remember being in, in Europe with, uh, with Britney Spears and seeing a gentleman that was not allowed, I believe his visa was revoked in the United States because of stalker threats that he had made to her. It was an Asian gentleman. I think he was Japanese. And we, we carried a binder that had certain faces and pictures and descriptions of, of mm. those that were credible, what we considered to be threats. Mm-hmm. 
and I happened to notice him in the crowd. Um, he had dyed his hair a different color, and I had alerted my partners, and we did, you know, we made a, we took action to get him uh, removed from the venue. <laughs> um, you have specific threats like that that you know of, and then you have, you know, the unknowns, the stage jumper, yeah. um, the person that tries to use a fake pass to get back, you know, to get backstage. And, you know, really all those elements create a certain kind of borderline paranoia that you have to have. And, you know, people see sometimes somebody get a kid gets on stage and gets to, you know, artist A through Z, and you, you know, you pick the name, and they wonder why security acted a certain way or didn't act a certain way. And, you know, we have to consider every one of these people an active threat to the person that's employing us life. Yeah. You know, maybe they want to go dance on the stage, but we don't know that. We don't right. know the intention. In this day and age, um, it makes it even more of a, uh, you know, uh, we have to make that threat assessment um, instantaneously. I, I think that's a really interesting point you raised, too. And, and um, because I think the perspective, as we see a lot and portrayed in the media, is that there's this sort of um, over abuse of power. Uh, when taking a suspect into custody, whether that's LAPD or whatever the, the situation may be. But you're right, as it relates to artists and venue security, you don't know who's a threat that's just jumped the barricade and is on stage. So uh, it's weird to see what gets sensationalized and to hear your perspective on, well, actually, you know, we don't we don't know what the threat is there, so we've got to take, you know, our certain protocols. And so this- Well, absolutely. And, then, and then we have to realize that there's about 15,000 camera phones filming us in our actions and we're being judged. Right. Not only are we being judged, but we are in essence, you know, the typical security crew will have maybe five people for an individual artist. You'll have two personal guys that are the close protection agents and you'll have two to three people that actually work the venue, getting the venue secure for the arrival of the artist and then communicating with the local staff that you've hired that day to fulfill, you know, the rider and the requirements that we have. And then also working the show during the artist's performance, making sure that artist is safe, functioning as, you know, uh, an extension of the personal security. Yeah. So we have to not only make sure that we're taking care of the artist, but the artist's image is protected. So if Joe Drunk Guy gets on the stage, you know, I can't go up with a taser and tase him and pull him off. It would look terrible for the artist That's if the true. security team acted in such a way. Right. And in essence, most of those times that would be way too high a level of, of response to the threat, you know, being put forward. So. Right. Path of least resistance, but can't yes. do it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I got it. It begs the question. First of all, were you involved with um, Justin Timberlake's performance at this most recent Super Bowl? Um, I was not at that time. I was working for a band uh, called One Republic. Um, okay. I was with them for about almost two years. Um, what I call the biggest band that nobody knows. Right. They, they have more hits on the radio and more songs you hear in coffee shops. I mean, they're also one of the bands that are not as easily or not as often recognized. Right, right, right. Um, great bunch of guys. Really, really enjoyed my time with them. Um, but when you look at uh, you know the work schedule they have to offer you versus what's going on this year with with Justin, you have to go with where the work is. Sure. So you mentioned something. Um, I, I'd like to define also as a baseline. Um, when you say close protection agent, I'm assuming that's AKA bodyguard. Is that correct? So 
I've done that work as well. I spent um, close to a year with Kanye West, my partner and I. We worked for a company that employed us to do close protection with him. We were his, his in essence, well, we were his bodyguards. We would switch off during a weekly shift. Um, we were required to um, to be armed under his employment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that particular job is much more involved, and I'll even say stressful, than, than say, being involved with the venue work. Um, Give me an example of why that would be more stressful. Well, because you're not only dealing with the potential threats from the public, but you're dealing with the paparazzi, Mm. you're dealing with the fans, and you're dealing with the artist personality, his traits, and his idiosyncrasies, or Mm. her idiosyncrasies with the female. And having to balance all those things calmly and judiciously every day uh, to get through the day. And, you know, sometimes... um, you know, celebrities have certain quirks, you know, or like I said, idiosyncrasies that make them unique and sometimes difficult to deal with. And you have to have a personality that allows you to uh, um, adapt and yeah. function with their their needs. Would it be safe to say in in your profession that it would would PTSD be something that you might deal with? No, no, no. I would never put myself in a position of somebody that actually was involved in something that. Um, that's serious. Now that that may be because uh, because I have not experienced a threat to bring to that you know thank God to that to, to that level. Yeah, or that I've received really good training to the point that um I've been able to deal with any perceived threat at that level. But again, t- to back it up, I've never experienced live fire. I've never been in a situation where um. You know, thank God, I've had uh, the level of stress that would that would you know classify me as PTSD. Yeah, but I guess what I'm getting at too, and 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 I, I hear your answer, but you know, like you said, you're. I feel like there you have to maintain almost this schizophrenic state where you're hyper vigilant, like you said, right, and then at the same time be in a passive state to the artist approach. So you're, you're sort of, you're being this chameleon all at the same time where you're, very true. you know, so, you know, as a, this is my assumption and I'm thinking like, and then, like you said, you know, you find yourself right now in your hotel room, you're about ready to pass out. And I appreciate you taking the time but uh, to talk with us. But I mean, do you ever wake up in a cold sweat or have like this nightmare? Like you failed. So maybe it's not no, a PTSD. No, I have whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. No, in, in all seriousness, that's one of the problems sometimes with this job is it creates a level of chemical dependence for some people to reduce the stress. Yeah. Um, you know, I, not to say that I don't enjoy a nice glass of wine or whiskey sometime, but um, you, you just can't do that when you're working the personal game simply because you don't know when you're going to get a phone call or when you're going to be off or when you're going to be mm, going back. Interesting. Um, but the reason why I, I decided to leave uh, that personal detail was because I realized the stress it was creating was, was carrying over into my personal life and it was making me a bit more uh, antsy than I needed to be. Or um, I guess maybe a, this would be kind of the answer to your question. Does it spill into other areas of your life when you don't want it to? Yeah, yeah. it can potentially. And it, like any 
thing that becomes a uh, um, that affects your life negatively. You want to try to get away from it and make distance from it, and that's what I chose to do. I see. Yeah, and this that leads to another interesting area where I want to go is the where is the gray area between your security detail with an artist? Where does that leave off? Because obviously, there's the venue security side. And then you have more of the close protection side. Where where is that fine line where the artist shuts the door and goes, "Okay, Mike, I'm good." Or is is it? Are you invited into those intimate environments because that artist has developed a friendship with you and a closeness and a bond and knows, "Hey, Mike's tight. Mike's not. Mike's seeing some some shit right now, <laughs> but but Mike's not going to go there." Great question. Um, some artists either consciously or subconsciously test you. Um, and I can't, and I won't be specific as to who I feel was that for me, but let's just say that you, you have to know when you are being professional and when you're being, Ooh, let me give you an example. So I was with this particular artist when they were recording, uh, their record, uh, about a year and a half ago. And they went to a very remote location to do this, and they liked to play basketball. And there were only three people, and they needed a fourth. So I became the fourth person, and I ended up being the teammate of this person I was working for. And we're literally at a park in Arizona playing two-on-two. And when I play basketball, I, you know, I, I talk. <laughs> you know, I, get into, I get into it. So I had to kind of bite my tongue a little bit. But at the same time, I had to know when the game is done, it's done being, I'm done being uh, playing on this team with this person and, and the, the mm-hmm. game face is back on mm-hmm. and I'm now back into being a professional. Um, and the problem that some people get into is they don't know where that line is drawn. They get too drawn into being the quote unquote friend of the person they're working for and you're not their friend. Right. You can become close to them, you can develop a relationship, but once you start to think even if you are in some aspects a friend, you have to know where to draw that line. Otherwise, it compromises your ability to do your job. And that's one of the biggest mistakes a lot of people getting in this job don't realize. Yeah. You know, if you can have respect for the person you're working for, you cannot respect the person you're working for. But you still have to realize that you're there to perform a function. And the ones that get too close to, with the person they're performing that function for are the ones that inevitably will fail at, the, at this job. Yeah, and I got to imagine even, you know, back to your your the basketball story, even though you're this person's uh teammate or you know, you're you're playing hoops and you're being casual, I'm sure you've got one eye on the hoop and one eye on the surrounding area, still making sure. Were you in a closed environment or was this like a public area or what? At that at that particular location, so um again, we had advanced so when I say advanced, we had checked it out in advance. We know where it is, what to expect as far as traffic. And we were talking a very, very low traffic area. So that, no, I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, you know, one eye left and right and one eye on the hoop, so to speak. I knew I was in a a fairly secure location. Um, So that was less of an issue in in that specific time. But what I was very cognizant of was my actions and my words. And because we were playing with a couple other quote unquote celebrity types that were there recording with them. So, you know, you have to be aware of, you have to be very self-aware. I think it's the best way to put it. Yeah. And know when to, to, 
you know, if you're being brought into that game atmosphere, you play, you do your thing. When it's done, you're back to being, you know, the close protection agent, and, and you, you make sure that line is drawn. And this particular person I was working for was very, and, and this is an unknown, but it was, if you read the signs correctly, he's very into professional behavior. Okay. And another yeah. little side on that. So my partner, who just recently also uh, left that position, to go to something else. We were the only two out of a 10-man team that were not fired for one reason or the other. So um, I became close protection initially because I'd been with them on tour. We had developed, I won't say, again, a friendship. That's not the correct word, but he was familiar with me. And this particular person was, was um, like that familiarity. So I was kind of put in that position. Yeah. And then... Um, other people around us were subsequently let go, and for various reasons. So it keeps you on your toes, and and, and the whole that brink come you know harkens back to that friendship thing. Yeah. Don't ever get comfortable. Yeah, yeah. Um, d- when you're ever with an, uh, a huge name, um, do they ever do they ever just wanna do they ever wanna go out and just be normal? And what I mean is, do they ever just go like, hey, Mike? I'm in the city. I'd really like to go visit this place. Do you think that's a good idea? Are, are, do, are you an advisor in, in some regards to, and say, yes, that's a good idea or no, that's a no go. And obviously that's a good question. You know, yeah. Yes, for sure. In our capacity, as, in the capacity of being, if you're that close protection agent, that's with that person when you travel. And then I've traveled with in that, in that, in that capacity with, with this person many times. Absolutely. But you're typically going to be the, it's going to be the assistant slash manager making those suggestions first, and then you might be the the fourth uh, person questioned on that, which you think would be the other way around. But what I've found is many of these people don't want to be insulated. They want to experience things. I've been in, a, in, in London years ago in a pub, and I'm sitting there with some of the crew guys who were on tour. It was with Justin at the time, years, years ago. And I'm having a beer, and who walks in? Justin, and I forgot who I was dating at the time. And as soon as he walks in, my beer gets thrown to the other side of the bar. And if I'm going to be there, I'm not drinking, I'm hanging out, and I'm basically put in a position of, you know, by default, being there to take care of him. Now, this was uh, unbeknownst to you? This was I'm, a... I'm, I feel compelled to be, to be watching out for him. Right, but this, this wasn't a planned thing? You didn't know he was coming? No. exactly. Okay. And then you just snapped right into, like, I'm on it mode? So, somewhat, somewhat. You know, but but again, this is a guy that just walked out of his hotel, walked down the street. Some of the crew guys were at this pub. He wanted to go hang out with some of the crew guys, and he's there. Yeah. And of course, inevitably, the cell phones come up from the other patrons. People right. taking pictures, and more and more people come. Right. And then he decides to leave, and yeah. it's like, okay, I follow him a couple blocks, and he waves me off. So, right. Okay. You know, he and there's other situations where people want you on their hip. I see. Um, because a bit more paranoid. I mean, and. It's funny, this one particular person that I worked for for a long, for an eight-month period of time <laughs> was a complete creature of habit. Almost the same restaurant for dinner every night. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was one of five spots that we would go to almost, my God, in, the, in, the, in those eight months. That we, I think we went to those five spots 90% of the time. Right. And so, and does that make your life hell too? Because you've got to anticipate that, someone's going or are you thinking geez someone's got us clocked like it would be so easy is that was that where your mind is going absolutely because 
one great thing about a creature of habit is, wow, you know, the people at this place were going, they, they do certain favors for you, you can make a quick call, hey, we're coming in, can you hold this table, the valet knows you, they park your car in the right spot. But the flip side of that is, okay, the paparazzi knows where you go, Yeah. a fan that is you know, reasonably conscious would know where you're going. So that can create some complications th- that you don't want. Fortunately and, and, and thankfully, we never had that scenario happen other than the paparazzi. We never had a fan stalker issue, but, you know, the paparazzi knew um, where we go and Dude, get their shot. At, I think, and, and just to, I don't yeah. know if you want to round table back on this later on or, or go back this later on, but the, I found it, the paparazzi very interesting. Yeah, go there. What? Tell me. Well, what I did, I didn't make an adversary out of them. I made a, I made a friend out of them. And how do you do that? Well, it's the same six to eight guys that follow the, this specific artist and his wife or their family um, almost everywhere. So you get to know who they are. Okay. So as opposed to saying, get back, get back, I would simply walk up to them and go, hey, guys, how's it going? I know you. You know me. Just respect the space of this part person, you know what their likes and dislikes, please do as instructed, and I will not get in the way and affect your shot. You'll get your shot. I'll get my mm-hmm. artist safely to where they're trying to go. Yeah, It's a cycle of life. We work well together. And so I would go up to them and see them, hey, what's up? Hey, today, this kind of mood, do me a favor, back off a bit. Or today, hey, yeah, they're, they're feeling good. Do your thing. Just respect the space that, that we have established. And that worked great. Yeah. Occasionally, you'd get this newbie in, and he would not know the rules. And he would break the, the, the code that we had established. And so what I'd do is, when that happened, I'd go to these guys I knew, and I'd point to the, the, the brand new guy, and I'd say, hey, this guy here is going to cost you all your shots. Right. Teach him the rules. <laughs> tell him how it happened. And then we'd walk inside, and we'd watch them basically berate this guy and tell him, you know, how to function at his job. So it took the pressure off us. Right. They were self-policing themselves, and it cre- created almost a, a, a kinship and a uh, an an ally in the paparazzi because if they're around you taking pictures and you know who they are, you can trust that the level of threat is is somewhat diminished. Yeah, well played on that. Yeah. Hey, I'd like to jump into talk a little bit about some of your training now. I think I, I obviously know you. Most people, uh, it's probably better if they don't know who you are, what you look like. Um, so you're a you're a, an amazing athlete, a cyclist, which if, if any of you know what the typical body uh, type of a cyclist looks like, that is not Mike. Um, you know, most of those guys are 140 pounds. Their arms look like you could just snap like a twig. Mike is a substantial fit, muscular cyclist. I'm 6'1", 220 now. Yeah. Yeah, man. So I, mean, he's, I think when I was riding bikes at my lightest, I was 190. So, you know, for the crit racing we were doing back in the day, that was, you can get away with that. You weren't going uphill. <laughs> um, but yeah, I wasn't a typical cyclist. For no. Sure. So it, listen, it begs the question, you know, I, I ride and, and I've been riding for years and of course you have your brushes with cars and you know, Hey, they have, they like to cut you off because somehow they think that they're get, getting one up on you. What they don't realize is one, one slight move and you're dead and, and, and their car is scratched and people don't right. get that. Um, have you ever had a situation when you were cycling where you needed to, um, uh, how do I say rectify a situation? You know what, Ryan? One thing this job has taught me is cool heads prevail. Okay. And I'm the guy that rolls up and I and I get everybody back and I stop the shouting and I and I I go, "What were you thinking?" If I would approach people like this, "What were you thinking?" We're on bikes. You're in a car. 
you tap us, we're going down, or you totally cut me off. Did you not see me? Like, I go, what? my first question is, what were you thinking? Because I've been, you know, that typical thing where you're riding in the bike lane and somebody comes in front of you, speeds up, makes a right-hand turn in the driveway. Yes. So I follow him into the driveway. I go, did you see me? <laughs> you realize you just cut me off completely? Like, I try to have the conversation because the shouting match, I've been there. Of course I have. It doesn't do anything. Right. Makes It makes them mad at you more. You're just simply mad at them. It ruins your ride or, you know, it ruins your your, your moments. You're out there to, to ride a bike to relax. So... Yeah, I mean, I've I've never been the guy to be kicking mirrors and, and doing crazy stuff like that because in the end, it doesn't accomplish much. And for what I'm doing now, I can't I can't afford any kind of um, a blemish, right? Any blemish right. at all. Yeah, right? I mean, I took not to get into the gun thing too much, but you know, to carry a concealed weapon in California, really, any for most places, you've got to have you got to be pretty much a good, upstanding citizen, and, and yeah, and you can't let anything affect that um um that that status and and, uh you know we're held to a little bit of a higher standard and uh to work in california with a concealed weapon will definitely bring in a a a higher rate of income so i got it so it's i'm always thinking about that in the back of my head but even (laughs) even if i wasn't even before that cool heads prevail and one of the big that brings a good a good point in a lot of people get in this job because they're 6'5", 280, and they're quote-unquote, like you described me earlier, a badass, which I don't, I don't actually potentially, or particularly like that description <laughs> because that's the perception of the job, what we are facilitators. Um, verbal judo is, a, is, a, is something my cousin taught me. He was ex-CIA, FBI, Secret Service. Um, okay. and the ability to speak and, and use your, your words as weapons is a tool that very few people have. And I don't care how much you bench press or how many people you choked out or how much MMA training you do or how good you are at jujitsu. Um, the, when we're working with somebody that's a high profile person and I put my hands on anybody, I'm the extension of that artist putting the hands on that person. It becomes an instant you know, monetary liability, um, legal liability, anything. Occupational, um, yeah. You know? Sure. So, um, the ability to talk somebody and recognize a situation before it occurs and approach somebody and say, hey, look, and it happened last night. We had a couple guys that were super drunk. I had to approach a guy, approach a, guy a couple times. I said, no, look, if I come back to you again, you're leaving this area. You're gonna, it's going to ruin your night. Um, you're not going to see the show. The show hasn't even started yet. I'm going to slow down to the drinks. Be aware of the people around you. Have a good time, but have an understanding of the people around you are trying to have a good time, too. Little things like that. Put the seeds in their head. Yeah, but sometimes you can't reason with a drunk idiot. Now, you just came across really polished and, and I think really you know, in control of that situation, but you, you can't control the outcome of the guy on the other side. I mean, did he go, did he give you a, you know, F you man, or was, did he kind of hear your words and go, okay, that's reasonable. That is, that's the beauty of being able to, uh, um, the first step, which is you assess that person before you approach them, their behavior, their body language. Are they smashing beer cans on their forehead or they dancing with their buddy? Yeah. How they're dressed, their, their, their stature. Are they with a woman? You know, very, you know, are they trying to impress people? You have to kind of take a step back and read the book before you walk in and you approach the page. And 
what I do is, is do that, and I think I'm pretty good at it. But are there times where we've had to be physical? Absolutely. Um, has it happened that often in my 18-year career? Actually, you'd be surprised. No, it hasn't happened that much. And I think that's because of the ability of the team I work with and the people I work with and, and my ability to actually look at somebody and kind of, I don't know, put the pieces together the puzzle where you possibly can before you have to act. It doesn't always work, man. It yeah. doesn't. Can you there us... are times when yeah. you have to become physical, but again, part of the training is if this guy is drunk, I'm not going to go put my hands on him. The reason why we hire some of these locals and these supervisors is to do the actual phys- physical work mm-hmm. of extricating and bringing people out mm-hmm. right to create a barrier between us and them our, our job is not to interact i shouldn't say interact it's not to that's not our job our job is to make sure the artist is safe and the crew that we're bringing on tour is safe we're not here to, to get into it with the patrons that's the building's obligation put it that way right and in doing so for like you said you know a couple decades now um, and I don't want to harp on this and I'm not trying to, pre- I'm not trying no, to bring it up. But, Let's do it. But what, get, can you give us an example or a scenario where you actually did need to, um, be physical and what were the circumstances and, and what, what happened? Uh, of course in Vegas. Um, shocker. This was, I think the future sex tour with Justin in 07, 08. And in the VIP area, I noticed um, that the, my boss, um, the director of any security was in an alter, not an altercation, a verbal, verbal altercation with somebody on the floor. And I came up behind that person and I noticed that he was clenching his fist. He was kind of getting a bit more tight. I was looking at some of the signs mm-hmm. and he made a move towards, um, my, you know, my partner and, uh, he swung on him. Before he could swing on him, I had his arm back, and I was able to get him in um, a reasonable chokehold and, and just basically neutralize him enough to get him out of the VIP and get him to, to one of the locals um, to be um, you know evicted out of the arena. On on the Kanye tour, Can- the Canadians, when they get into uh, their summer season, are, they're wild. We had about 15 fights <laughs> in, in that one, and... Uh, on the Kanye tour, just for some that don't know, it was a floating stage that flew in the air. And the crowd's on the floor, they're wilding out, and they're drinking and all that. And in the process of moving with the stage, you do it in contact, you know, you contact patrons. And I had somebody push me in the back, and I simply, when I was done doing what I do it, was doing, I reapproached him, I said, don't put your hands on me again. And then he went to push me again, and then I had to, use the skills that were taught to me to put him <laughs> on the ground. And then knowing he had a friend, his friend swung at me and I was able to move out of the way. And then a melee ensued on that. But again, I had good support and good backup with some local security and the two guys were arrested and brought out. I mean, that, that's yeah. a typical scenario. We're not yeah. going toe to toe and fighting anybody. Yeah. Um, you're, you're typically nine times out of 10 using a submission move just to put the person down on the ground and to mitigate the situation. We're not punching. We're not, we're not fighting. Um, Right. You know, um, it's it's neutralize the person, control the situation, and get them out of the out of the area. Yeah. And uh, what is there a martial art discipline you're using? Is that is that jujitsu that you're practicing, or or some other form? Or you know what? I've been trained by a couple really good guys that are versed in. in, in the great thing about Orange County, it's 
everybody fights MMA, right? Yeah. So I had a chance to work with a buddy for a couple of years, and we would simply work on, I would say, I would call it jiu-jitsu, yes. Um, you know, ground and pound type stuff minus the pound. A lot of submission holds, right. stuff that were specific to the career path. Um, and just knowing how to submit somebody from multiple positions, and if somebody's on top, you how to get them off. You know, things like that are relevant to the job. I don't spend a lot of time um, boxing, kicking, stuff like that. If I, if I practice any skill, it's going to be, you know, more on the ground, rolling with someone, and uh, stand-up submissions, things like that. Yep. And okay. you're constantly evolving. You're constantly learning. Okay. So um, I do a lot of, I've been working on now really more recently is a lot more tactical firearm training. Um, just because it's kind of an evolution of, uh, of the work we do. Mm. And, you know, um, that sounds depressing. Um, it's just the reality, right? It's just the world we it, live in. It is now. reality. And, and honestly, it's, it's one of those things where as a civilian, if I ever pull a farm out, a, I'm screwed. And B, if I have to use it, I'm double screwed because, you know, the laws favor, um, the non-gun yielder in most situations. Mm-hmm. Um, look, look at police. If there's a if there's a shooting, police go through an entire review process. They have an entire police league, and or I'm, I can't think of the actual name that I'm looking for, but they have basically a body of people there to protect them and keep them silent until all the facts are out to keep them protected under the under the uh, the law and their um, you know and whatever their guidelines and parameters are uh, for a shooting. So right, right. a civilian that has doesn't have a that hold that status is held to not a higher standard, but at least the same standard. And the justifiability of your actions has to be, you have to be an imminent threat of your life and be able to prove that in a, in a moment's notice. So. It, it is a fine line that you walk, my friend. Um, yes. so there's this question that strikes me as, as you're, you know, like you said, you just came off work 24 hours, you're in you know, it's the middle of the day, you're laying in bed, you're probably exhausted. You know, you're going to go back on an X amount of time. Um, and you have to maintain a certain amount of physicality, a physical presence. How do you find the motivation to get the training done? Like you're laying there and thinking, you're probably thinking, I'm so tired. I need to sleep, no, I'll but I got to work out. That's like, my second job. I'm, it's, let's see, it's, what time is it? Probably five o'clock ish here. Um, the first thing I did when I got up was like, first thing I do before I get to any city is I find a gym. Okay. The hotel gyms are not good 9.5 no. out of 10 times. Right. So. As a last resort, I'll use the hotel gym. But I, I got up this morning. I downed a protein shake. I ran to the gym. I got my workout in. I came back. I had some lunch, made some phone calls, did some emails. And you know, by that time, you were calling me. Yeah. So that's if I have a day off, I'm doing that. Um, on some tours, you're doing push-ups and pull-ups because there's no downtime. Thankfully, yeah. with the artists I work with, that's few and far between because, you know, these people want to rest and sleep, too. So, um <laughs> Right. I can get it in. So you get it situation. done. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um, do you ever, do you ever consult with special operations guys? Like if there's a particular venue, you're, you're in advance of a Timberlake tour type thing, huge high profile act, and there's a terrorist threat. Does your job lead over into government agency work or is, is how's Absolutely. that? Absolutely. Okay. Um, I would say it's less, Common, we make great contacts with FBI, with with uh, Secret Service, even with Air Marshals. Believe it or not, mm. um, a good example is over the summer, last summer, working with One Republic, we opened up four dates with uh, with U two in stadiums, and we had security briefings with Homeland Security, with FBI, 
um, going over uh, you know, plans of action should things such as a drone land inside the venue, you know, how, that, how to treat that, uh, evacuation plans for, for, uh, for the crew. Um, funny, one of the things that I do now, which is, a, I would say, a new and emerging thing that probably half the tours do and half don't do, is the first thing I do when I go in the building every morning is I create an evacuation plan that gets emailed out to every one of the crew, band, and performers. Mm, um, yeah. And I put up bright yellow signs with arrows pointing out to the closest area of evacuation, and I create a rally point, you know, a gathering point. Yeah. Should an evacuation be required by the building, whether it be from natural disaster or, or a bomb threat or active shooter, um, and in those emails that I send, there's an active shooter protocol that goes out, what to do, should this transpire. So there's always a plan in play um, for the unknown. And, and, you know, you can only plan so much, but um, but some of those Homeland Security contacts have given me some of the information for, um, you know, how to do the certain things and techniques and, and, and you know, just help educate me on some of the processes, so. Yeah, um, it's always good to have them in your back pocket. And a lot of those guys have families that like music, and you know, nothing that a couple of tickets won't buy for favoritism. And, yep. and, uh, <laughs> yep. and uh, it, you know, it pays off in the end. And then, so this might be a scary question to the listeners. Probably uh, something fairly common knowledge to you, but one, I'm going to make an assumption that there's probably more security, plain clothed, and what have you, and 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 sort of forward thinking, advanced security than we realize is surrounding us at a concert. Um, the obvious question is, you know, is there typically a threat and or has that threat gotten more severe since, of, you know, an Ariana Grande or certainly, you know, a Las Vegas shooter, which was not within the venue, but from an elevated position in a hotel room? I well, mean, what, what's happening out that, there? So, and I don't, I don't know the motive of the Las Vegas shooter, not that we ever will know the motive of that guy, but. Typical thing for most terrorists is to inflict as many casualties as possible. That creates the most amount of fear. And the best way to do that is to have a, uh, a public in a confined location and, and, and tightly packed, right? So what better place than a music venue or a mall or, you know, a, a B or C place? So I think the shooter simply had a, um, for the Vegas thing, he had, uh, he had the mindset, he had the means, and he had a, a tactical location to inflict tons of of loss of life. Yeah, the Ariana Grande guy had never actually made it in the venue. He actually blew up his himself or whatever in a train station, I believe, um, located adjacent to or near um, that venue, which we'll be performing in this summer, by the way. So he never made it into the venue, and most of these actually if not all of these venues you go to these days, you're passing through metal detectors. Only certain bags are allowed inside. Um, you know, size bags are allowed inside. So the level of, of security that goes into these venues is, is high. There are bomb suites before every show that, that we, um, you know, we're closely with law enforcement to, to, to get accomplished. Um, so the level of security and, and safety at the majority of these concerts, it's very high. Would I have family go to them? Absolutely. Yeah. Could sure. it be better? Absolutely. But by and large, I think we've got a good balance between patron enjoyment, expediency of, of, of entering the venue, um, 
and 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 security. There's a good balance there. And now, yeah. if somebody finds a way to find a, a an opening in there, the loopholes have to be tightened. Uh, I'm hoping it never happens, but it, it's one of those things that, that may be you know down the road for us. But uh, as of right now, I think it's a pretty safe place to be. Yeah, well, let's hope it stays that way. And as it relates to the the artist safety, have you guys ever had a situation where okay, venue's secure? You know, you've you've done all your prep, like you said, you've you've got all your your plans in place, and you receive sort of a late notice that there's a threat to the artist, and you've literally had to make a judgment call whether that artist goes on stage or not. Is is that a real realistic scenario or or not? Um, we've had bomb threats called in on almost every tour I've been on, um, but they've been disproven to the point that the show has not been canceled. We've had weather related stoppages. Um, that of course that's not terroristic or threat related, but we've had things where we've had to prevent the show from going on. Um, I'm trying to think, so that's that's really it. Nothing that's been credible enough to prevent a show from happening. Okay. Um, we do have plans in play for that artist should something happen. That I I don't want to get into too much detail on that because that's a little too specific. But I understand? Yeah. There is a plan in play for protecting the artist in the event of a credible threat or something happening. So we have a plan for that, a specific plan per venue. Right. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about um, you know, life on tour. Um, so you're on tour now. We talked about you know access to the gyms and having the discipline to get it done. What is what does life on the road look like for you? And how do you maintain a balance with you know a significant other? How does that come into play? You know what, dude. You know just for for full clarity. As you know, I, I uh, took some time off right after Britney Spears in 2010 because um, I was like, ah, I got, I want to settle down, be at home, and, and parents weren't getting any younger, and uh, met a good girl, and um, so I decided to take some time off for about three and a half, four years. That's when I was running the shop and kind of reconnected. Yeah. Um, and my fiance at the time, my wife now, didn't really get it. But over time, as she met some of the men that were really are my brothers, um, Randy, uh, two guys, Randy Jones and Todd Dukes, that were actually in my wedding, Don V, um, Derek Bryant. So the four guys in my wedding were, were either people that I had, well, actually three of the four people that I had I'd known through touring and one that I got in into touring um, that was a longtime friend of mine. So, you know, you meet these people, you hang out with them for a year and a half. You don't see them for maybe three or four years, but when you see them again, it's like the day, the day never passed. Yeah. So those are the kind of friendships that I hope anybody in life could have because it's an amazing thing to have. It's, it, it truly is. I know people that have friends they've known their whole life and don't even know them. These guys would give me the shirt off their back and potentially even die for me and, and I for them. So not to be too dramatic with the whole thing, but that's a, that's a truly strong relationship and a great relationship to have. And to have one friend or four is a blessing, so. Anyway, I digress. It's <laughs> the, the relationship uh, with the wife, uh, she's one of a kind. She's a great woman. Uh, it's incredibly tough. And I'll never, ever make the comparison on a military wife. It's, it's a disservice to, them, to anybody in the military because what I do is nothing like what they do. But only from the standpoint of time away, uh, there is somewhat of a similarity. But yeah. we have the luxury in this line of work to be at hotels, to be at nice hotels, and to have the ability to fly the spouses out, to fly my wife out, I should say, uh, from time to time, and to experience a new city and to create new memories. Um, 
We're supposed to have a three-week rule where we don't go longer than three weeks without seeing each other. That doesn't always happen. Um, it's been a probably four and a half now since I've seen her, and I'll see her in about five days in New York. Um, but it is tough, and you have to have an incredible amount of strength, love, devotion, and and trust for one another. And we, we thank God, share all those things. And yeah. she makes it easier um, for me to do this. It's it's not what it was 10 years ago when I was out and it was more about the fun. Now, it really, I shouldn't say it was about the fun. It was a bit more fun then. It's much more about the work now. Um, that's, I think, because the times have changed. And you know, obviously, you know, people grow up and, and their, their uh, priorities change. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was, that was a... That was a great answer. Yeah. I, okay. <laughs> I, uh, no, I really think so. I think um, I think you got a lot in in <clears throat> in perspective, and you know, I, I, it clearly is it it is a it is a tough job, but it, it is kind of a. It seems I don't know, man. There's there's a certain part that seems like you're part of the show. Like it's kind of this glamorous thing. Here you are, kind of working security. Or, you know, you're talking about some of the biggest you're you know, working with and protecting and, and serving some of the biggest artists on the planet. So I think there's yeah. a certain amount of romanticism that maybe average Joe thinks about, but what I'm trying to get through is this very sort of, um, which I think is the place you're taking here, where you're taking a very sort of humble path and like, this is my job, it's my occupation. And um, I think that's coming through um, in our conversation today. Um, so, I mean, you know, yeah, just to speak on that, if I may, that comes from good training. Yeah. Thankfully, the guys that trained me, one of them, a guy, the guy that brought me in the business that I, that I told you about that made that call back in the day, bring me in a guy named John Q. Algani passed away three years ago. Young guy, 40, I think he passed away 42 years old. It happened. Heart, mm. heart condition, Widowmaker didn't know about it. Killed yeah. him instantly. So, um, you know that I owe I owe I owe my life to that man. At least my direction in life, my my career path to that guy. And I, I think I constantly strive to make him proud. And it's funny because another guy that he brought in around the time that he brought me in, a guy named Josh. So we're working for the first time together on this tour. So that's kind of cool little caveat or, or note there. But um, but besides him, again, Randy Jones, Todd Dukes. I was this punk kid from Huntington Beach. And these guys brought me in under their wing, and I dedicated the work ethic and the drive and the hunger and the aptitude to do the job, but I also had the training to do the job. Um, and part of that training is knowing your place. It's not about the show. And I know many people in this job that don't work in this job anymore because it's very reputation-based, and it's very high school. It's a very small world. You've got 100 people traveling from city to city in tour buses. And it becomes like anything else, the gossip, the person that, that does this and gets too drunk and throws up and all that kind of stuff. Like, you don't want to be that guy. Yeah. No, you never you want to keep that. perspective. And yeah. I think I've been in a good position of being able to have a good perspective. And I, I got to give my dad credit for that, too. I think he raised a pretty good kid. So um, Now, you mentioned your dad earlier, and I, I, I just want to ask you, does your dad, You need? I don't know how sensitive this is. Not even, no. Was he in some kind of service protection business? You kind of alluded no. to it. No. no, no. The story I kind of alluded to with my dad was, and, and you can edit this out later if you want, but I'll tell you the basic story. So he was a young kid, 
um, I shouldn't say young, came out of the service at about 19, got a job working in a meatpacking plant, got laid up from that job, made a guy named Cal Santer. We told my dad he should get into the beef grading business, which is a federal job. My dad says, I don't know anything about grading beef. Cal says, don't worry about it. Show up to this place at this time. Sign your name on this test for grading beef. I'll take care of the rest. My dad gets in his car. Nothing else going on in his life. Drives across states to take this test. Goes home. Comes back. And I guess about two weeks later, he got the results of his test back. And it said, congratulations. You passed the top one percentile of all beef graders in the country. You're, you're bypassing your training. Here's your first assignment. So my dad basically took, you know, let this guy BS his way into this job somewhat by trusting this guy. I shouldn't say BS. They took a risk. And then his first assignment, he was sent to Iowa um, to grade beef. And, and back in the day, in the, your cattle was your livelihood, and the beef grader determined the value by grade of that cattle. Does that make sense? Yeah. So here's this whiz kid grader everybody came to see grade their beef, and my dad's walking around with a stamp stamping beef and not knowing what the hell he's doing. Until finally one guy came up to him and goes, you know, basically, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my dad told the guy, honestly, sir, I have no idea. Yeah. And that guy thought my dad had a great beef. So we had a similar parallel in life in that he took a chance, and I took a chance. And yeah. I hope that story makes sense. So, yeah. But my dad went on to own his own meatpacking plant. Um, they had divisions in Guam for seafood, and now he's happily retired and playing golf three days a week and, and living the life. So. As he should be. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Mike, so you know, what are some of the qualities that you think a person needs to possess in order to do what you do would be the first part of my question. And then is, is there a demand for a young crop of guys out there who may want to do this as a profession? And what would you tell them? Yeah, there's a huge demand. As a matter of fact, if I had more people, um, that's what I'm trying to do is build up my agency that I could send off. I could employ them probably next week. But to answer <laughs> your question, first thing is you've got to be trainable. You've got to be eager. You've got to be a people person. You've got to be good at reading people, taking yourself out of a situation, putting yourself back in mentally. Um, you've got to be able to project and be good at, at leading. Leadership skills are huge. And then also physicality comes into it because there is a certain aspect of expectation in this job that you're going to have a certain level of or stature about you. You don't got to be seven foot three, two 290 pounds. You don't have to be, you know, uh, look, I'm, I'm 6'2", 220. Um, and I'm probably uh, average for the job, if not a little on the smaller side. But there's guys that are smaller than me that do excellent work that are uh, better, if not equally as trained, uh, than I am. So, you know, stature is one thing, but really more important than that is the mindset, the trainability, the ability to lead, some, lead a, a group of people. Because don't forget, we're employing locals. We have to be able to get mm. their attention and, and direct them in a way that's easy to understand. Um, and so how would I get eager. started? How, so I'm listening to this. I hear you. I go, gee, okay. I think I've got good leadership qualities. I think physicality-wise, I'm there. Um, you get started in event staffing. Okay. You go down to contemporary services. You go down to whatever your local places that employs the people that work in the concerts. And you, you put your, your halls and walls time in. You put in your monotonous, boring wall, you know, time in. 
you get the job done. And when, when the guys like me come in, you question me, you ask me questions, you maybe get contact information, you continue to work and evolve, become a supervisor in one of those positions. Once you become a supervisor, then you are qualified enough to potentially, you know, not do exactly what I'm doing, but be a, uh, um, to be a partner of maybe what I'm doing, meaning you have the understanding of the way tour security works. Um, get your, if you're in California, get your California guard card, which is your certification to work in the state of California. Uh, get training. If I'm ex-military, yeah, go to one does... of the many uh, EP agencies out there and, and, and get training. Sorry, Mike, I don't mean to cut you off. No, Let's no, okay. go ahead and say that again. Um, besides the guard card, but get training. There okay. are several schools and places you can go to in California, or even if not schools, I shouldn't say schools. There are courses covered six in Simi Valley. It's a great place that teaches first aid, um, uh, defensive tactics, shooting if that's your thing, Krav Maga. Um, get as many things under your belt as possible. So if you go in and say, why should I hire you? Well, here's why. Yeah. Does, does ex-military play in? Is, is that a... Yes. Okay. I mean, I don't have, I'm not ex-military, but it's a, well, yes and no. If you have... The great thing about ex-military is trainability um, and they understand discipline. You know, if you've got to stand on post for eight hours, you may not want to do that. You might get bored. Well, guess what? That might be a job one day. You know, that may be what you have to do. It may be 12 hours. Yeah. Um, when I was working for, uh, for one of these artists, um, I basically sat in the car for 12 hours some days waiting for him to move. Some days he did, some <laughs> days he didn't. It gets, wow. You've got to have yeah. the mental discipline yeah. to do the job. But yeah, training, aptitude, eagerness and people skills. Perfect. So I want to do a new segment with you. It's called questions from my kids. Uh, okay. So my son, uh, Jack, age nine, he wants to know if you've gotten an autograph from Justin Timberlake. I do. I actually have, um, kind of a, I guess maybe a funny story. So we were in, uh, the UK during his Justin's first tour. And on that tour, I'm known as a guy that can eat and eat and eat. <laughs> and on that tour, uh, I had a bet with one of my partners that I wouldn't eat any sweets for the next, uh, whatever the duration of that, of that leg of the tour was, I think three or four weeks. And it was like a $400 bet. So during the tour, some of the, the dancers like to place bets also. And, and they bet me for, I think it was 500 bucks that I couldn't eat this entire bowl of candy in a particular amount of time. So I got through about two thirds of the, of the candy and the time <laughs> ran out. I didn't win the bet. They said double or nothing if you eat this tablespoon full of Marmite. You know what Marmite is? I don't. Okay. It's basically a, a yeast extract, I think it is, but it's like, it's salty times 50. Ugh. And it has the consistency of honey. Okay. So I ate the Marmite, had all the candy in my stomach, oh, and I proceeded no. to, and by the way, there's a ton of M&Ms in the candy. <laughs> I proceeded to go to the restroom and puke <laughs> my, uh, my guts out, and I look up from the stall to see Justin peering down at me. <laughs> <laughs> laughing his ass off. So to get back to the autograph point, I have a signed picture from Justin that says, Mike, thanks for a great tour. M&M's anyone. Oh, so, awesome. That's awesome. Great yeah. story. Great story. Um, so my daughter, Josie, age eight, wants to know, Mike, have you ever gotten in a fight? I think we kind of touched on that. Uh, yeah. Um, Ryan Walton in the second grade. <laughs> Let's talk about Ryan Walton for a second. Uh, so Mike and I went to, to Catholic school together, K through eight, and, and I was a runt. And uh, Mike and I, 
were buddies and we always seemed to sit next to each other um, in class. And Mike was, he's a super funny guy and I always used yeah. to get in trouble and, but I, yeah, we took a liking to each other, but I'll tell you yeah. what, when recess came, Ryan Walton would hunt me down and I, I wish I had your services or, or you had my back <laughs> back then. Cause I was scared to death of that guy. You know, my memory of you is, uh, kind of a semi blonde bowl cut. With your uh, your boombox playing uh, white lines. <laughs> oh, we're giving that away. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, fighting. Uh, yeah. Um, I consider some of the training I do when you're, you're anytime you're going toe to toe with somebody, you're fighting someone. The, again, the misconception about this job is is that your job is to fight somebody. That's not what this job is. This job is to um, neutralize the situation so that the person you're working for gets from point A to B safely or to prevent the person you're working for from being injured by any means necessary. And sometimes that involves being physical. Um, so I've been in a number of physical altercations, um, but very few toe to toe blows. And I, I credit myself with, uh, I get good training and, um, knowing when to act and when not to have to act. All right, wait, own this for me. Have you ever taken a shot and thought, okay, that guy got me? Has that oh, been? yeah. Yeah? Uh, God, have oh, I? That- <laughs> yes, but it was in high school. Okay, well, um, yeah, fair enough. You know, I'll t- here, okay, the, the closest time, and I'm not trying to sound like a tough guy. I'm a, I, try to, I have been lucky to be out of, or to keep myself out of those situations as much as possible. But that time on the Kanye uh, run when, I took the guy down, and I knew his buddy was going to come get me. He he got me on the chin. Okay. Uh, I mean, a little bit closer one way or the other, and I could have been out. But, yep. Um, you know, I was my chin was hurting for a couple of days, mm. but but thankfully it didn't get any worse than that. And I had a good team of locals that were there, and they got this guy down. But, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, that's probably the closest time when I or the last time I can remember. Oh, it's going to happen, and waiting for it. Yeah. Right. right. Um. But yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> right. the misconception is that we're walking around, bumping people out of the way, uh, pushing people down and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, A, I don't work for artists that expect that or that require that. And just like a cop walks into a crowd of people, he doesn't pull out a baton, start hitting people on the head to get from point A to point B. You know, we, we don't do that. Yeah. Um, and there has to be a reason. If I do something, I have to be able to say why I did it, what I was thinking, what the perceived threat was, and be able to answer for my actions. Yeah. And we cannot be proactive. We have to be reactive. Let's put it that way. Mm. Unless we have an imminent threat. Interesting place to be coming from. Yeah. No. And I. You know, again, I. Uh, you speak from a, a place of humility. I get that. And I think um, you know, in listening to you today, I've certainly learned a lot about um, the 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 steps that. Um, that you take um, to sort of avoid all that. And I have to admit, before even coming on with you, I, I've, I probably had a misconception myself as to, um, I would think that there would be certain situations where, you know, you would need to exert force. But, you know, I um, I hear you. And I wasn't really thinking about, you know, you as an extension of the artist and and all those things make a ton of sense. Plus, plus I know you're, you know, I know you're a good dude and you're not, you're not out head hunting, but I would, I would imagine that, you know, it gets hectic. If it has to happen, then it will happen and does happen. But good planning prevents a lot of that. And 
you know, if you come out to this to this tour and see it, I don't, I can't give this moment away. But on other tours, well, here's a, here's a good example. On the One Republic run, Ryan Tedder, the lead singer, every show tour in one song jumps off the stage, runs into the crowd. Do I have to get physical to move people out of the way with him? Of course, it has to happen. Now you have to, you know, measure the amount of of force you use to get that person point A to point B. And, and uh, you know, that, that was a constant piece of physical contact that I would have with the crowd and with patrons every night. Um, there may be something similar with this current tour that I'm on. Uh, can't mm-hmm. give away any secrets. But mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, there is a level of force you have to use at times. Yeah. But um, um, it's not as common as I think as people would think. Yeah. Our job is to be, not to be the front line. Yeah. We're the brass, and the event services is the is the front line, so to speak. And our job is to ma- mainly insulate the performer and the crew from harm's way. Yeah. So. Well, listen, man, so. this has been amazing. I don't know if there's anything else you want to end on, or, or you know, if not, um, if you want. Well, I don't feel like I'm giving you any gossip or juice. So well, I'm sorry if you wanted more of that. <laughs> I, I can give you an anecdotal story if you want to hear it. I would um, love one, please. All right, so I was working for this one particular artist that I mentioned previously. Um, and at this time, I was her director of venue security, so I was the venue boss. And I'm the f- I'd worked three tours for her previously. And I was the first face she would see when she arrived at rehearsals at the beginning of the tour and the last face she would see when she left because it was simply me and her personal, her, her close protection guy, um, when they arrived. So we, me and the close protection guy would play chess where they rehearsed to kill time. She would go out and smoke a cigarette. I'd lie to four. He would, and we'd watch her. She'd go back in and do her thing. She did several commercials. I'm the first guy she sees when she arrives, the last guy she sees when she leaves. And so, you know, on and on and on. Um, when she gets to the venue in the morning, I'm walking them to the dressing room. So I have a lot of contact with this person. And, and three three years of touring previous to that. So a mystery. So yeah. we're in the UK and at this particular stage that she was on during the show, she came down a ramp and I would, I would um, basically meet her atop the ramp and then she would grab my arm and I'd run her off the stage to her waiting tour bus or her dressing room, depending where she'd go. So one particular show that I was doing that running her off the stage and I hear her say, you're cute. But I'm not thinking anything about it because there's people around us and whatever. So the next day, my partner walks in and he's kind of smiling. And I go, what's, what's so funny? He goes, well, I heard what Brittany said about you. Oh, did I just give, I give the name? Oh, there we go. no. And he goes, I go, what are you talking about, man? He goes, she said you were cute. And I go, she was talking about me. And he goes, yeah, she gets in the car and she asks her assistant, who's that guy? And why doesn't he work for me? Oh, and she, my and she God. Told her, that's Mike. He's been with you for like three and a half years. <laughs> so anyway. Wow. Yeah. Wow. The power of the insulation. When you're insulated and you're just focused on what's ahead of you, Dude. sometimes you don't see the periphery. And I'm happy to be working for people that do kind of acknowledge you and, and know you exist. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's great. Maybe that's how well you were doing your job, right? You were, you were literally the periphery. You blended into the scenery. Well, the motto for my company is the fly on the wall, not the elephant in the room. So maybe that's it. There you go. Thank you for sharing that. Hey man, um, if someone wants to get a hold of you um, in terms of your services, um, how would they do that? 
Um, I'm going to be busy for the next year for sure with uh, with this tour I'm on. But you know, I've got a landing page. Uh, it's www.fayelloagency.com. Uh, uh, last name is Ephes and Frank A E L L O, and the word agency.com. Uh, you know, it's a pretty basic site there, but it has a little bit of what I do. I'm focused now on the uh, the venue aspect of security. I'm I'm taking myself out of the close protection realm just from the standpoint of this is really what I, I specialize in and what I think I'm uh, most adept at. So um, that's awesome, man. what I like to do, whether it be a an event, um, a wedding for somebody high profile or, or a concert, whatever, that's that's basically what I do. All right, man. And and are you coming back home to OC anytime soon? You gonna you, you staying on the bike? Um, my friend, I haven't had a road bike in two years. I have a mountain bike. I'm too big for Lycra. My rule is if you, if you wear large, anything bigger than large and Lycra, you shouldn't be in it. <laughs> and, uh, I so I that. ride a mountain bike yep. when I get a chance. Quite frankly, uh, I'm a little scared of the roads out there, man. Yeah. Too many people getting hit by cars. So, yeah. Um, but, uh, I'll be there mid April. I got about a week and a half off before we do some LA shows. And, uh, spend some time with the wife. So Killer. Sounds like it's well-earned. Uh, yep. Mike, thank you for joining us today. This was a really interesting talk, and uh, I know my perception has certainly been uh, altered. And, uh, you know, it's super cool to connect. Uh, best of luck on the uh, tour with Justin. I'm totally going to hit you up for tickets off air. And uh, no worries. Yeah, uh, if, if you hopefully you guys enjoyed uh, what you heard today, check out uh, Brevity Code Show at Instagram and uh, brevitycode.com. Uh, find the show on iTunes, and of course, hit the subscribe button if you would. If you like what you hear, let's do more, Mike. It was a pleasure. Uh, I look forward to seeing you in person, my friend. Bye, right, buddy.